for every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because the career looked to be pretty much finished. We didn't have that such a big launch pad as maybe some of our bands did at the time, but we're still here, so we did something right. You know, I came from Patti Smith, who from day one said, I am an artist. And I would say, we, we are artists, and we make music that we consider to be art. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. This seemed to be my natural comfort zone. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. I think the idea is to remain yourself, but stay open to being influenced. Hello and welcome to The Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Jockman. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music, insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the renowned British premium audio brand. This is episode seven of season three, in which we speak with singer-songwriter Steve Mason, ex-leader of Legends Beta Band. This episode is presented by the music journalist and author, Eamon Ford. Welcome, Steve Mason, to The Art of Longevity. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. I've just, in the last two days, finished the next album. Wow. Is that a moment of great relief or a moment of huge trepidation where suddenly you have to present this thing to the outside world? I feel very happy. It's been a a long, quite painful birth up to a point. And then uh, it all started to come together. And I knew what I wanted it to be, but I wasn't exactly sure if that would work. But the way that very, very different, quite disparate, types of music have come together it's been in the end incredibly seamless and it, and it sounds amazing and beautiful and Excellent. and it's completely different from any record I've made for a long time so I'm not the great salesman I'm a very harsh critic of my own work but it's an amazing piece of work and it's Excellent. and it's I'm very, very happy with it, yeah. Very happy. How do you know when an album's finished? Because I'm always reminded, I read an interview with Bruce Springsteen and he said that he could just sit there mixing and overdubbing an album and the only person who will tell him it's finished is John Landau, his manager, comes in and basically almost lifts, physically lifts his hands off the, off the mixing desk and goes, Bruce, it's finished. And he goes, right, okay, it's done. I can understand that mentality 100%, but I think that I always know when something's finished, yeah. I mean, for example, I spoke to um, the engineer Scott yesterday and I just need, I just need about three or four changes, one of which is 
I want my vocal up half a dB on the chorus in one song. Right, okay. So, so it comes down to very, very small things, but obviously everything's important. Everything's important. So, yeah, I don't think I've ever really struggled really with knowing when something's finished. Let's go back to the start then and, and talk about that. And I guess kind of even before the beta band itself, kind of what was your first entry into making music? Because obviously there is the point where you grow up and you love music and it becomes a point of identification. But then it takes a huge leap of faith to go, I want to create music. What was what was the trigger moment for you? I remember my sister got, she got one of these little Casio tone keyboards for her Christmas one year, a little thing. And then at some point, some bongo drums appeared. I don't know where they came from. So me and my sister borrowed my mom's little cassette recorder and we kind of started a band. Right. Just me and my sister. So we, and we had about three songs. Were you, um, were you like a prototype carpenter's end? More like a prototype bis or something like oh, that. Oh, okay. Barry Lo-Fi. Yeah, or, or suicide or something <laughs> like that. <you> know? <laughs> Moving into the, the world of professionalism uh, and kind of setting up bands, kind of what, what was the bridging point from this very amateur thing, not to dismiss the great art you were making with your sister when you were kids, but what was the jump from that into actually kind of forming the beta band? You know, we sort of started making music together. John bought a sampler. I had a guitar and, and by that point I had a four track. I moved in with them as well. I moved into, I, I was sort of sleeping under the under their stairs was by, the, in, by the gas meter. In Shepherd's Bush then? Was that in Shepherd's Bush, right. yeah. Okay. So we just started um, working on just making music, really, just trying to combine things that we loved, which was which was hip-hop and drum and, and jungle and dub reggae and, you know, and this, with the songs that I had and then make some new songs and, and what have you. So... It was quite organic, you know, but we were trying to combine things that we loved and and make something kind of um, new, I, I suppose, make something that was that was real to us because none of us were really into folk music. None of us were into right in, wanted to be an acoustic band, but or, but we had an acoustic guitar, and we didn't want to be. I didn't want to be a hip hop star. I didn't want to. We didn't want to make drum and bass, but we wanted to try and blend all these things together and make something that that we loved and hit all the right little spots for us. Yeah. And then we kind of, um, we had B&A and we had Dry the Rain and we had a track called Shepherd's Dub. Then a friend of, there were these two girls who were friends of ours at the Royal College of Art. And one of them knew a guy was a kind of manager and he had, I think he was a kind of manager and he was going into Parlophone for a meeting. So I said, take this tape in and play it to the A&R guy. So we did, and we got a meeting. Was that that was Miles yeah. Leonard? Was it Miles Leonard? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because uh, what you were doing at that time was really interesting. Like you, you mentioned a lot of the genres that you were kind of flitting across, and you and you weren't quite narrow or tribal in the way things were. And this is obviously a kind of pre-mass internet era as well. Now you kind of kids growing up, the idea of kind of jumping across genres is completely natural to them. But at the time, it almost felt like. And I don't know if you saw this, uh, felt this at the time, but you almost had a kind of musical bond or similarity with someone like Super Furry Animals. These kind of artists yeah. who were incredibly eclectic, who were finding music yeah. from kind of weird corners and really hunting stuff down, even when it was really hard to do that. And they almost felt like both those, both the beta band and Super Furry Animals were coming from a similar starting point yeah. of, of let's ignore yeah. the genre rules. Everything's everything's treated on its own merit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
I think I'd grown up, you know, with that whole youth culture tribalism thing, you know, and then there was a few sort of key things that happened to me during the sort of rave culture house thing, mm-hmm. particularly a DJ that used to DJ at a club in Dunfermline called The Cronk, a DJ called DJ Lel. You know, in his DJ sets, he would be playing, you know, house, acid house, reggae, hip hop, you know, and then sometimes at the end of the night, he'd finish with Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. And because I'd been a mod, yeah. for me, that really cemented a lot of things together that I'd already been kind of feeling that about this kind of line that goes through music from kind of, you know, I mean, arguably from somebody like Robert Johnson all the way up to whatever's currently number one in the charts. There is a kind of line that goes through it all, and you can see why things developed, why soul turned into funk from R&B or blues or whatever. And so once you start to see that and you see that everything's completely linked, then you realize that there is no rules and there's no walls at all and, and, and anything's possible. And especially, I think, just getting the sampler was a big thing for us as well and realizing that you could, I mean, we were using it in a very rudimentary way, but take something and slow it down. And, and even things like, like there's, um, in one of the beta band tracks, there's this, we've sampled a, it was John put, trying to put on a Beatles record, but the needle jumped across the record. And we just happened to have the sampler running at the time. Cause I think we were going to try and sample a beat from him or something like that. And the sam- and the needle just skipped across and so we just sampled that. And then suddenly you get a rhythm out of that. And then suddenly, and because it's such a weird rhythm and it's not actually drums that leads you, that opens your mind to think, well, what else can we put on this? Which just is not normal is slightly off the beaten track. And, and so I think samplers at that time were, they really helped us not do things that were just normal, you know? It did seem, certainly from the outside, it did seem to happen quite quickly for the beta band as well, from coming to perform and to getting signed to suddenly becoming this really talked about band. People were just bored shitless of Britpop. And the lad culture and the arrogance that came with that. And and I certainly was. Well, it was interesting, I guess, that you were kind of going through Polyphone, which you could say was the kind of catalyst for for that with Blur and Supergrass and lots of acts like that. Kind of Polyphone was the Britpop label in many ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, um, I don't know. I don't know about that. But um, but yeah, certainly I think that something needed to change and people were, people were desperate for a change. That I think that whole kind of lager football oasis thing had just become, yeah, pretty toxic, I think. And yeah. so I was on a mission to kind of really try and just destroy that, really. <laughs> you know, and the best way, because I, I was sick of people saying things like, we're going to be bigger than Beatles. We're better than the Beatles and all that. And, and I just think, well, you're, you're fucking not. You might be bigger than the Beatles, but that's only because people's expectations and, and the bar of quality these days is so fucking low that people like you can sneak in and become this enormous band. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so speaking personally, I was definitely on a mission to just destroy, you know, really. A bit like, a bit like the punk thing tried to destroy, or it did destroy, the prog thing and, 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 and all those kind of toxicity of multimillionaire rock stars yeah. noodling away for hours on end. You know, I, I felt that my, my personal mission was to put a, uh, a nuclear bomb under Britpop. 
There's one story I remember, and it was the first time I ever saw the Beta Band, which was I think the three EPs had just come out. I'd moved just moved to London, and you played the Electric Ballroom, and it was like a really buzzy gig. And I remember uh, waiting for a friend outside, and the the there was the guest. We were standing beside the guest list queue. We were obviously nobodies, and a, and we saw the Chemical Brothers come down to join the guest list. And you had a policy on the guest list, which was you have to give £20 to charity. And I vividly remember that. I don't know if it was just for that gig, which was way more than the ticket cost. And I thought that's a really interesting moral stance at a point when the entire record industry was was awash with money. And to, to kind of take that stance. And it felt that the beta band were slightly, slight misfits in that world. Yeah, I mean... Um... I guess the the difference is we we were very naive, so a lot of the things that we did, which looked a certain way to people, a lot of the time they were they were from naivety. When you don't know what the rules are, I mean, I didn't I didn't know any famous people. None of us knew any famous people. I didn't know really anyone in the industry at all. The only people that we that we really knew a little bit was the Verve, and that was just because they they used to let us borrow their equipment early on, but. We didn't. I didn't really know them very well. Um, you never had any talks about the music industry or what it's all about or anything like that. And I think that's the difference between a lot of the the people I see coming up now. They, you sort of feel like they've come from media training classes and they know all about the accountancy side of the industry and they know everything. You know, we didn't know anything. And so, whilst that does have its drawbacks certainly i think it's quite healthy because it just means that you don't know where the the lines are and where the rules are and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and and for us that was very important in in every aspect of of, of what we did you know how did that kind of translate into pressure from the label? Because obviously they they've got the buzziest band in the country and they want you to sell records and they will you're in a massive massive machine how did that kind of square with kind of how you wanted to uh, do stuff? If you were kind of on this mission to kind of uh, destroy uh, Britpop or the the kind of extreme elements of it? Well, again, you know, going back to us being very, very naive. At the time, we used to moan about the, oh, it's probably just me, but I used to moan about the label all the time. But in hindsight, they were fantastic, to be honest with you. They supported us. A hundred percent in all our decisions all the time. Um, they gave us enough money to do all the things that we wanted to do, all the crazy ideas, all the touring that we did, where we took that live show that you saw, you know, we yeah. took that all over the world. It was never watered down. We always got to a support, but I mean, it left us with, a, with an enormous debt. But, you know, they were never shy in coming forward with the money and they never hassled us. Miles was actually a brilliant AR man, but at the time, I had nothing to compare it to. You know, I was very intimidated. I was quite intimidated by the industry. And so we fought that kind of fear and intimidation by being quite aggressive. And it was a huge mistake. What we lacked was some very solid, clear management. And it's especially somebody that we kind of respected that could let us know really what was really going on. Like to actually let us know, actually know what, you should probably be a bit nicer to the label because they're actually really supporting you and they really care about what you're doing and they think it's really important, you know, and the situation that we were in wasn't normal. You know, we were totally left alone. They just gave us shitloads of money and said, go and get on with it. All that money was spent on the band. We didn't, 
we didn't have a pot to piss in, really. I mean, we didn't buy houses, we didn't buy cars, we didn't buy anything at all. We didn't even really buy clothes. Wow. You know, we bought records and musical instruments, and the rest went on on all the crazy ideas that we had. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers and Wilkins. Bowers and Wilkins loudspeakers are trusted by some of the world's leading recording studios, including Abbey Road. It's a real pleasure to have Bowers and Wilkins supporting the show. You said that you kind of you felt now that maybe you, you didn't understand how supportive the label was, but then you, you would do things like I, I remember that I think it was the NME interview when you came out when the debut album came out and you basically just went, "This is terrible. Like we hate the album," which was probably not a good selling point because I, I remember a few years earlier. Lee Mavers had said the same thing about the Laz album, but that was kind of, that album was released out of necessity. It was just kind of various demos, or whatever. whereas you guys had, sat, had signed off on this album and then go, we don't like it. I'm not completely blaming the management, but somebody, and a manager with his eye on the ball would have seen what was going on and that really we should have, we didn't have enough songs at that point to make a second album. We should have just held back. And because the three EPs that have been written over the course of, two years and suddenly I had to try and write 10, 12 songs. I mean, it was a very intimidating situation for me because Gordon wasn't in the picture. So, so previously there had been me and him writing songs together and he was a much better songwriter than me. He was far more talented than me, but then he'd gone out of the picture and suddenly I'd signed a five album deal with one of the biggest labels in the world. And, I, and I'd probably only written about three or four songs. So it was very, very frightening, you know, and I was, I felt really alone. Really, we didn't have enough material. And the other thing was we were making a lot of it up in the studios we went along because we didn't have enough songs. So really, somebody should have stepped in at that point and said, just stop, go away, write the songs. We've got money in the bank. There's no great fucking rush for this. Just relax and put out something when you're ready because the the momentum at that point was so great. If we'd have taken another year, the expectation would have just risen. I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming anyone. That's that was the situation, but that's really why that happened. And I, I was so disappointed. But I put myself under a huge amount of pressure. There were great songs on that album. I'm thinking, like particularly, uh, "It's Not Too Beautiful" is a real highlight. Yeah, but, and, yeah, and, but that's a classic example. That is basically one verse and a chorus, right? Stretched over eight, eight <laughs> or ten minutes, or whatever it is. You know, I didn't even bother to really write another verse for that. And I think back now and I think, God, that was just, what a, wa- what a wasted opportunity, you know. If the song had just been developed a bit more, it could have been, instead of being amazing, it could have been extraordinary, you know. Well, I guess there were also, there were some moments where it, it kind of looked like things were really, really going your way. I'm thinking particularly the, the use of Dry the Rain in High Fidelity. That was a big moment, even though lots of Americans refer to you as the beta band rather than the beta band now. But that was a really big moment. This little project that you have suddenly be, gets the Hollywood treatment. Yeah, I mean, I don't, we didn't really think too much about it. The only thing that we thought was it was going to be like background music. They didn't, they didn't, we met this guy. He was a friend of John Cusack's who was involved in the film. I can't remember what he was called. So he was kind of doing the pitch, but he didn't really tell us there was going to be a bespoke scene in the film about the band selling the record. We just thought it was going to be like background music or something like that. So we were just talking to this guy about music and he was pretty cool and, um, we had a few drinks with them and then we buggered off and didn't really think too much more about it. And then we went to the premiere in London and then our fucking jaws hit the floor <laughs> when that scene unfolded, you know. And uh, But I think, again, at that time, you know, whilst I was lacking confidence in 
certain areas, I, I 100% believed in the music. I yeah. knew the music was amazing. When things like that happened, I thought, yeah, damn straight someone's going to use it in a film because we're fucking amazing. Yeah. That was great for us because that obviously came out in America. And then we did a couple of tours with Radiohead in America. So those two things together, they, you know, they covered so much ground for us in a very short, they probably cut out two years worth of touring in America, those two things, the Radiohead tours and the high fidelity thing. We were bigger in America than we were here. Wow. Well, there was a bit, I guess, a bit of a missed opportunity with Squires because you'd obviously used the same sample as who was it? It was Oi Monster had used the same sample and you held your track back and they got to number 20 with it. And then what do you, you, you replaced it with Broke and One as a, a single. I think that became the single and that, that got to number 30. Do you think things would have been different if you'd kind of went, if you got Squares out first, which used that sample first? Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's the only thing I could say about the label was that they, they just, I think they wimped out, really. Because what happened was Radio 1 said that they wouldn't play two songs with the same sampling. The thing that annoys me about that is that people say that, yeah, two songs with the same sample. I sampled the Burt Camphor Orchestra, but the Eye Monster guys, they they just put like a breakbeat over the whole track. Yeah. You know, there's nothing particularly clever about that but I just took a little sample and then the rest of it's out you know my song it was very frustrating at the time I think that if that was me and I was the manager or I was involved in the label I would have turned that into some sort of marketing opportunity you know Radio 1 won't play this yeah. blah 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 there's so much you can do but they just sort of uh, yeah they just sort of crapped out really and uh, that was that was frustrating and, and, and annoying but um but the great thing about, you know, that was it came off, you know, the, the, the second album, which was Hot Shots 2, which was kind of like us, I guess, fulfilling what we were really capable of. You know, I think it's probably the best thing we did was Hot Shots 2. Would you prefer to think of that as the uh, the debut album proper? Um, oh, yeah, I wish it had. If it had been and we could airbrush the first album out of history. <laughs> what about the stuff that came after? Have you kind of had zeros to heroes as well? It just felt that there was still, even though the Squares wasn't the hit that maybe it should have been, it still felt that there was a lot of momentum behind the band. Yeah, there was. And we were still doing great things. And um, you know, that whole, the whole Hot Shots period was probably the, the best time. You know, we'd, that's when we did the tour, the two tours with Radiohead. We did a lot of tours in America at that point and Japan. And that was probably the best time really that period, you know, because we, we were more confident by that point, you know, and uh, going into Heroes to Zeros, yeah, it was that was much more difficult. And yeah, we needed management at that point. We changed managers. By that point, we had a guy called Frank Gironda and who's over in America. And that was a mistake getting him. We should have had somebody in this country. And again, it just came down to, they needed, we needed some man management, really. We needed some my interpersonal relationship management between the four of us, some help with that. Yeah, it was difficult. The writing of that record, the recording of it. It was during the recording I decided I didn't want to be in the band anymore. Oh, right. Okay. You, you kind yeah, of feel this, yeah. is, they, this has kind of reached the end of the road. Yeah, it was just um, just my my relationship with a member in the band. that I, I just felt it had reached the end of the road for me. I just didn't want to be involved with them. So. And, and other things were difficult. It wasn't just that, but other things were difficult. The, we were just lack of management. There was, the money was dwindling by that point. 
Nobody was looking after the money side of it whatsoever. And again, it, it goes back to what I said initially. It's like, just don't assume that people are doing what you're paying them for. Don't assume people are looking after stuff because there is just as much chance that they're not as that, as that they are. And nothing was being looked after. We were just, we were just like a, a ship that had lost its engine floating around on the sea. We weren't particularly getting on the four of us and it was difficult. It was a difficult time. Is that then the key to longevity, a good manager, having someone who can have those difficult conversations that can knock heads together, that can be a peacemaker, can deal with all of the admin and the label staff and the tour and stuff and all of that and basically just give you the space to create? It's it's not one thing. It's a lot of different factors. That was a very complicated time and not a nice time. You know, I wouldn't really want to blame one factor and I wouldn't really want to say that one factor being right would have fixed it. But certainly when you have four strong personalities in a band, you need someone looking after that. You know, I mean, it's being in a band, especially a band like that, is very difficult because you are, you're living with these people. You're creating, creating with these people. You're creating music. You're creating film. You're touring with these people. You're business partners. It's a very, very difficult relationship. Very, very difficult. And there's four of you. It's not even just, there's, there's two of you. There's yeah. four people, all with different expectations, all with different needs. And so it's, um, it's difficult. And when things feel like they're starting to slide, you know, that's when, you know, a good manager needs to come in and grab the situation and give everyone what they need, you know, whatever, whatever that is, you know, and give everyone what they need individually, talk to the band as collectively and find out what everyone's problems are and then slowly start to slowly start to sort it out. But as I say, we were just kind of adrift. We didn't have anyone helping us really. And that was a big problem in the Beatty Band all the way through. Keith here. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. What was the leap then to go in solo? Because I guess psychologically, structurally, that's a big change. Obviously, you'd, you'd had King Biscuit time, which was kind of running parallel for a bit. And that kind of became the focus after the band. Did you want to do that kind of under a pseudonym rather than your own name for a reason? I guess King Biscuit time was already kind of up and running. I mean, even now, I don't really like recording and touring under the name Steve Mason. It just sounds like, some friggin' middle of the road uh, acoustic load of crap. So, but at the time, yeah, King Biscuit Time was up and running. You know, that already had a little bit of a cult following. So, yeah, it just seemed like the thing to do. And I was very happy about going solo and being able to just make music, you know, rather than have to involve anyone else's ideas and get things by people and all that kind of crap. I just wanted to just focus on and just have no, nothing diluted, you know, you know, I mean, one of the things, one of the things I really miss now is that, is that band thing. Not that I want to be in a band again, but I've always imagined it. Like every artist has like a, they're given like a box and there's lots of ideas in the box. And then if you want to want to do something like whatever it is, a painting or, 
a film or a piece of music. You go, you go into the box in your head and you have a rummage around and you pull some ideas out. But the more time you spend on your own, creating on your own, and there's no one else's input, you end up going through everything that's in that box, you know? Right, yeah. So I think at the moment, I kind of, and this is one of the reasons why I've, I've just finished this album and I involved a lot, an awful lot more people at the stage of kind of just not necessarily writing the songs, but just jamming around and playing over sections and trying things out and just trying ideas out. Because that's kind of what we used to do in the beat band was kind of mostly I'd have sort of half a song or whatever. And then we'd start playing around with ideas and rhythms and melodies and, uh, and styles and beats and stuff. And, and it's harder to do that when you're on your own, but when you've got, you know, just me and another two or three people, you know, and you can make sit in a room and just make a noise and try things out. I've missed that creative side of it. And now I miss that creative side of it very much. Yeah. I guess you've got that. You can spark off people, but also they're kind of carrying some of the burden as well. It's like everything's not entirely on your shoulders. So as you say, you can come in with a bit of an idea and then you kick it around and then it becomes this completely different thing or they help help you finish it. So I guess you're kind of quite exposed as a solo artist in that way, which basically you just go, okay, it's just me. Everything, there's a great deal of autonomy, but there's a huge amount of pressure and risk with that as well. Like, am I doing the right yeah. thing? You don't have you don't have a sounding board in the way that you would have in a band. Yeah, I think it just took me a long time to... Because I felt that I needed to prove myself to myself outside the beta band. Right. I didn't really, really bother about, you know, doing better than them or whatever. I didn't... I honestly didn't care about that. I just wanted to prove to myself that I could exist outside of that band. And I, and I did, I did that to myself quite a while ago. I think it's just a matter of having that confidence to involve other people and not feeling that you have to have that complete autonomy all the time because it doesn't work. It doesn't, music should be a communal thing. I think depending on what you're doing, but you know, it works much better if you involve other people and because not only do you get their input, but they spark things in you, which you would not be able to spark on your own. I don't know what you think about this looking back, but uh, Boys Outside, it felt like you just had, you'd kind of nailed a sound and an approach on that album that kind of, in many ways, has kind of proved a template for everything that's followed, where it, it felt like you created a whole kind of sonic world and a sound and an approach and an aesthetic. Was that a difficult album to pull together or did that no. feel quite natural? No, so I was kind of working on what was supposed to be the next Black Affair album. Right. So I did a, I did an electro thing called Black Affair in between King Busy Time and Steve Mason, but it wasn't going very well. And so I just got frustrated and I, and I picked up my acoustic guitar for the first time in probably two or three years. And I wrote the song boys outside like that. Um, I thought, fuck, that was easy. You know, uh, instead of, you know, monkeying around with synthesizers and drum machines and MIDI and all that, stuff you know i just remembered what it was like to just be able to sit with a guitar you know and sing with the guitar and, and what an amazing thing that is and so i kind of got back into that so so then richard x who produced boys outside he got in touch with me to say um, that he loved the black affair album and what was i doing you know was i doing anything and i said well 
I've started a Black Affair album and I have these sort of things. At that point, I was trying to make a goth R&B. <laughs> That's what it was going to be, like somewhere between kind of uh, Bauhaus and Aaliyah. Wow. Yeah. And to some success, not, not that anyone's heard anything, but to some success. So anyway, I said to him, look, you know, I've, I've got some tracks, but I kind of I feel a bit done with that now, you know, and I've started, I've got now got three or four, you know, songs that I want to do. And I think I'm going to do that. I said, but I'm sure you wouldn't be interested in that. He said, well, send, send, send me them anyway, send me them. So I sent him them. And, and what I was trying to do was combine kind of an 808 with an acoustic guitar. I mean, and the best example of that is song boys outside where you have the large kick drums and blah, blah, blah with with acoustic and so i that's kind of what i wanted to do was try and have um yeah have these two elements which i hadn't at that time i hadn't really heard being done before he really liked the songs and he, and he wanted to do it so by the time i didn't have a deal so i started going down to london to work with him when he had some studio downtime so that and that's really what happened so that uh, that record probably took probably took at least a year to record because we were just doing it in bits and bobs, you yeah. know, a week here and a week there. How was it working with him? Because obviously he had also worked with like big, shiny pop stores as well. He was like having these big, I got people like even like Rachel Stevens and, and artists like that. So he had that, he yeah. had that side to what he was doing. Yeah, but he's also really into like electronic music, especially pop music. Like he's, he loves the human league, you know, and but he also loves SEN and stuff like that. And, Sonically, I think that's probably one of the best records I've ever made. The vocals on that album, I think, are, are amazing because he really took the time to get the details right and was really pushing me to sing, you know, really perfectly and get everything right. And um, and he did a brilliant job of that. But I think sonically as well, he's fantastic. The technical side of things is quite boring for a lot of people. But I think in my sonic history, that's quite an interesting anomaly because it is is so well produced and i don't mean that the others aren't i mean that in the others a lot of the time i'm looking for a bit of dust i'm looking for a a little bit of kind of low quality here and there to add some flavor but with that pretty much we just went full you know high fidelity for want of a better word and then you did the the dub version as well so you kind of did the the dub outside album filtered and taken a whole other approach to that as well yeah, I'd, I'd always wanted to do that. One of my favourite albums is is Garvey's Ghosts, which is the dub of Marcus Garvey, the Burning Spear album. And I'd always loved that idea, you know. And um, and I was talking to to Grant from Massive Attack, Daddy G. I was talking to him one time in Bristol and about this idea. And he said, he said, what, what about Dennis? And I said, fuck yeah, that's a great idea, you know, because I'd love Dennis's. I love the fact that he's done, you know, he's done everything from the slits to Linton Quasi Johnson to Orange Juice to all kinds of stuff, you know. I mean, he's just a hell of a lot of fun. My God. You have, you'd have to be a corpse not to uh, be <laughs> laughing your head off yeah. within five minutes. Dennis. Is, is, is a, that really important then to kind of have people rather than the kind of the hard taskmaster in the studio, have people that you get on with and can have fun with? I think it has to be both. You have to have someone that when, when the fucking red light goes on, fucking laser beams, you know? Right. You have to. But yeah, I think um, obviously it's really important that you connect somewhere musically. You know, I might not know everything 
all the music he knows and he might not know everything I know, but I think that there has to be certain commonalities. And obviously with reggae, you know, obviously he knows that inside out and I know a lot about reggae and, you know, he's a big personality and I just wanted to get in there and sit beside him and watch him do a live dub. And that's kind of, kind of what he did. So he did new backing tracks, reggae backing tracks for every song. He got his home players in from the, from the Dennis Bavel dub band. And, th- and then that's what he did a dub of. Were you all right with him just kind of go handing the tips over and going, do whatever you want? No, well, I think that's, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm with Andrew Innes, you know, just destroy it, destroy <laughs> it, you know. What is the point of me getting involved in somebody with that much experience and that much knowledge? If you're going to hire them, then you've got to go all in, you know, you've got to go all in. Otherwise, there's no point. How was the, the transition then to work in with someone like Stephen Strait? Because I guess he had a completely different approach. And I remember I, I read some interviews with you at the time around uh, About the Light. And you said that you liked the fact that it was kind of created as a band, going back to the points we were a reason earlier about kind of you felt maybe slightly adrift as a solo artist and you missed that kind of dynamic. Was that, yeah. did that all come together as kind of one thing, get Stephen in? And then also go. This has to be a band-centric album rather than just me. No, it was. It was already before I even approached Stephen. We were. I got the band into the rehearsal room, and we were working on the songs together for a lot of different reasons. Partly because I missed the thing of just working on things with a band and trying trying things out. You could just try something out straight away. And you've got to understand when I usually when I write music, I'm in a Pro Tools session you know, recording each individual part, recording the drums, recording the bass. And if you want to hear it slightly sped up or if you want to, it's a lot of work. So obviously with a band, you can just go, okay, let's try it a bit faster or let's try the chorus, you know, there instead of there. So it makes things a lot easier. Plus the other thing was at that point, I just got married. I'd just become a dad. Um, I was trying to buy a house. I had I had a lot on my plate in my personal life, so I wanted to try and make things as easy as possible. Because you know, in the past, I've had mental health issues, and I know that when things start stacking up like that for me, I, you know, I, I'm fine now. But I, it, it's always at the back of my mind sometimes that when issues and pressure starts to stack up like that, I always worry a little bit that I might crumble. You know, right. so it was partly a kind of preemptive strike against any sort of, you know, mental wobbles, okay. you know. You've been very open about a lot of a lot of the problems that you've had in the past and the, the struggles mm. you've had and the kind of a lot of the dark thoughts that have kind of gone through your head at various points. And is the music industry a lot more understanding of this now? I can't comment largely on what it's like now because I don't have any of those issues now. That's I, I'm lucky that I dealt with my problems and I'm really absolutely fine now. So I don't know from my point of view, but I would certainly think from stories I hear more on major labels than anything else, know that it's learned its lesson too much. However, it's now mandatory for labels to have some kind of mental health person on site to deal with people that are having problems, which was something that just never happened in my day. Yeah. That's really, really healthy. The problem in my day was that, or I mean, my day on a major label was that the industry was full of maniacs. It was full of people with 
completely unreasonable behavior, completely unreasonable demands, people that were drinking too much, people that were doing too much drugs, people that used to get into fights, people that used to do all kinds of things. That was normal. Yeah. And it wasn't just people in bands. It was the A&R men and, and everyone, you know, the, the press people, everyone. It, somebody like me didn't stick out like a sore thumb at all. It was fucking normal, really. Right. You know, it was only when, and, and I'm not picking them out for any reason other than they happened at my time. But, you know, a band like Coldplay come along and they all seem very sensible and middle class and lovely and all sorted and they're all from very nice. This is what they seem like. I don't know what these guys are like personally whatsoever. I have no fucking idea. I'm just saying on the surface level, this is what it seemed like. Whereas the norm is the exact opposite of that, or it was back then. But the whole industry is completely different now. Nowadays, I would say it's mostly populated by people who are from uh, very well-adjusted backgrounds. They've all been to state school and Brit school and what have you. They've had their marketing training and their, uh, you know, it's all pretty, mostly pretty fucking dull. And I'm not saying I would replace that with a whole lot of people with mental health issues because that's just <laughs> nuts because I've been there myself. I think that it was difficult. Yeah, it was difficult. But you have to understand, I'm saying this is from being one of those people myself, you know, and this might sound like a crazy thing to say, but I think that you have, it's a, it is important as, as cutthroat and horrible as it sounds, it's important to balance what somebody who's struggling a little bit is going through with their output. If their output is amazing, you know, when, and when I was suffering, my output was really amazing, you know, in terms of my writing, my lyrics and, and the thoughts I had, the imagination I had for, for, for creativity. And as I say, I'm not in any way uh, advocating some sort of record label for people with mental health issues, which is just like, you know, like bedlam with a pressing plant or anything like that. <laughs> Because that would just be awful. And it's awful to have people who are just cut adrift like that and don't have anyone looking out for them, don't have anyone helping them. But as I say, you know, um, it seems to be standard issue now that, that labels have to provide some sort of um, uh, mental help on site yeah. for people on the label who are having issues, and, and also, which, is, which is great. Yeah, also if you have a good manager that fights your corner. I remember speaking to uh, Ellie Giles, who manages Bill Ryder-Jones, and he's obviously got well-documented problems. And she said when he's doing anything, recording an album or tour, and she has like huge kind of bricks built in and they're kind of non-negotiable. You're not going to put him on a six-week tour because he's not going to be able to finish it. He can't spend six weeks in a row in the studio. So it's like, and it feels like that couldn't have happened in the 90s. I don't think you would have had people who would have been so attuned to those things to go, let's take small steps to get to the end destination rather than just rushing there. You just need a strong manager to stand up for what the artist needs and just let the label say, well, look, this is actually what's happening. He's in the studio for two weeks. He's having a week off. He's in for another two weeks. He's having a week off, and that's it. There's some, you know, some people need a structure. It can be the lack of structure that that gets to you. And, and any, you know, if you're in the studio for four weeks or six weeks, or if you're on tour for six weeks or two months or three months, and you start to feel very cut off and and lonely, and and then you, you know, you start going out with people after the show. It's very easy for the wheels to come off, especially, and sometimes people find it most hard when they come off tour, when oh, you I, come back. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, friends of mine are session musicians, and they used to play in uh, Kitty Tunstall's band, and they said they, 
And they're obviously not the focus of attention. Kiri was getting all the media, doing all of the interviews, all of that sort of stuff. And they said they were coming off a big tour. I think they'd probably been away for the guts of a year. And they were all dropped off at Victoria Station. And they all kind of looked at each other going, how do we get home? How do we use the tube and the bus? Because everything had been done for them. So even that period of kind of re-entry into normal life is very difficult. And it's obviously way more amplified if you're the focal point. Yeah, I've everyone that's in a, in a band that lives around London and has that has had that thing where you, the tour bus stops at Victoria Station and everyone piles out. And you're like, "Fuck, what do we do now?" <laughs> Usually, most people head straight to the nearest pub. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's weird. I mean, I I don't tour for such great lengths of time now, but when I did, um, you come back off tour and everyone, all your friends and your your partners' lives have moved on. Mm. You know, they're all doing different things and. And you suddenly you start to feel not part of it anymore, and um, and and you're different as well. You know you're different, and it's a strange existence. It's a very strange, existence. and that's why you know as much as you know we can sit here and talk about the band side of it and the issues that the bands have mentally. But I think in terms of the road crews and the and the front of house sound engineers, like I mean those guys are on tour, you know probably eighty to ninety percent of their lives. Yeah, the issues that I see amongst those guys far outweigh any issues I've seen on the other side, you know, because they, they have no roots really whatsoever. They can't hold down any kind of steady relationship. They see various friends or girlfriends or boyfriends in different parts of the world, but trying to keep a steady relationship going at home, forget it, you know, forget it. The Art of Longevity is a team effort. The show is produced by the Song Sommelier, that's me, with Project Melody. It's audio engineered and edited by Audio Culture. Our amazing cover art is by the wonderful Mick Clark. And original music for the show is by Andrew James Johnson. So talking of the live side of things, how have you found that in the last two years when obviously it was pretty much impossible to tour and that huge part of your life was closed off? How have you kind of adapted to that? I went into the lockdown thing. That's when I was, should have been writing. So I was already out of a touring schedule and into what was supposed to be a writing thing. But I really struggled to be creative at all, you know, for a long time during the lockdowns. But then money, you know, starts to become an issue because, you know, nowadays artists earn probably 80% of their income from live. So, and then the album was taking a long time, you know, so to come together. So, yeah, I did a tour just before Christmas when the Omicron uh, variant thing happened. So you sort of felt that that was snapping at your heels yeah, every yeah. gig, that any minute now they were going to say, right, <laughs> stop, you know. I mean, the big issue for me now is that the album's finished, but you have an eight to 12 month lead time on vinyl now. Yeah. I have a big financial gap now, which I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to fill just yet. So it's that you have to stay uh, positive and you have to stay in the frame of mind that it's all going to be okay and that you just have to keep moving forward because, you know, I know from bitter experience that if you let these things get to you, then you start to tread water and then you can start going backwards instead of forwards and then you really are in a lot of trouble. So I'm just trying to kind of uh, keep pushing people to to try and get some work and this year is going to be the most difficult one, I think, for me. 
So what's the plan then for the new album? You said that you, you beyond a, a few little overdubs here and there, it's pretty much done. And then you've obviously yeah. got this whole issue of the incredible lead times at the press and plants to, to get the, the vinyl version uh, out there. Are, are you looking at a kind of end of this year release, end of the summer maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we, and we, need, we need to go in and have a meeting with, uh, with Lawrence at Domino and just figure that out. I think the other thing I learned from my time in industries is, is to just let people do their fucking job. You know, Lawrence has been very much involved throughout the whole process of this album and he's heard it in all the various stages. So, you know, now it's, now it's done and he's really, really happy with it and publishing departments, very happy with it. So I need to let them come up with a plan and do their job and to give it the best chance. Cause yeah, I might, I might be struggling financially, but, I'll be able to find some way of plugging these gaps. You know, the best thing, the most important thing is giving that album the best chance it, it possibly can have, you know, because it is a great record and it needs to be heard. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't come out till next year because it's not fashion sensitive. Right, okay, not, not, not time sensitive. Do you like having that labelled structure around you as well because obviously there's a huge number of opportunities for artists particularly someone like you, you you've got an established name you've got a kind of you've got an audience that's kind of already built do you still want mm. that label around you to or have you considered doing it yourself become your own label or do a label services deal or something like that not really no not seriously i guess it's i come from that generation that always wanted to be signed right you know i'm sure Kids and young people coming up now, they think in a very different way. I like being on a label. I like being on Domino. It's a very special place to be, and I feel quite privileged to be on Domino. Um, and Lawrence is fantastic. And yeah. um, I mean, they, they all are, everyone I work with there. So I like that. I suppose I like that feeling of people being involved and working for you and and talking to them and making a plan and, uh, and them having the faith. Because... Domino don't have to do anything they don't want to do. So, you know, you kind of feel like if they're going to put this record out, then it's worth putting out, you know, and I yeah. think you get a bit of confidence from that. And um, Yeah, you, you look at kind of how prolific Domino is. It's almost like an album a week they put out. They, they sign a lot of stuff. And they're not so concerned about this has to make money. There's lots of things mm. that Lawrence will mm. sign or other people at the label will sign and they'll just go, well, this is good. We like, we just want this record to be out and it's not so yeah. driven by the bottom line. Obviously, they'll, they'll have uh, an Arctic Monkeys album will come along every couple of years that can kind of help pay for everything else. But it just seems that they've managed to strike a really good balance between art and commerce, which is not an easy thing to do. And I guess being part of that family must be good as well where you've got encouragement yeah. from a label that will prioritize the art yeah absolutely i mean um that whole art and commerce thing that's the thing i've been struggling with my whole life really i mean i've managed to make a living out of it and i've never felt that i've artistically compromised myself so i guess that is quite a success but for a label yeah for a label it's much more difficult because they need they have to have they have to have some sort of income from somewhere to keep the whole thing going. And as you say, they've, they've got a lot of people on that label and they're, they're so busy all the time. But yeah, they do it, they do it really, really well. And, and you know, Lawrence only puts out records that he, that he believes in. 
it's nice to hear an artist who is favourable towards labels because obviously in the last couple of years with things like Broken Record, the, the labels are often invariably the majors, but some independents are held up as these kind of evil people that are screwing over artists and exploiting them and they're all terrible. But it's nice to hear an artist actually go, well, yeah, they serve a very clear function and understanding how they fit into what you do. And I guess having a really good relationship makes things good for both yeah. of you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the the more that you involve them and, and create personal relationships and stuff like that, the better, you know, and it's, it's taken me a long time to sort of, and as stupid as it makes me sound, it's taken me a long time to sort of realize, to realize that these things are important, that I, I think, it, you know, initially when I came into the industry, I just thought everyone was the enemy, you know. Right, yeah. And that's a huge mistake, you know, and some people are. Some people are just vacuous, self-serving, you know, whores of Babylon. But they're in between those people. There are one or two who are really the gold dust that you need to keep close by your side, you know. And, um, you know, I wish I'd, I wish I'd seen at the time that Miles Leonard was actually one of those people. You know, I mean, um, it's much more clear for me to be able to see that now. It's just about growing up and becoming a bit more mature. And having experience in the industry. Well, well, you're now, I guess this year's your quarter century as a recording artist. You're an industry veteran. How do you feel that your career has gone in those 25 years? If you do what I do and you're serious about it, then you always want more. I've always wanted massive success, but I've wanted it on my own terms. And that's always, that's where the issues crop up. So. To say that I was 100% happy with where I am, I'd have to say no. But I don't see that as a negative, necessarily a negative thing, because it's that feeling that pushes you on to always do more, to try and better yourself and, and, and be more creative and, 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 and make greater art. Am I proud of things I've done? Yeah, I'm very, very proud of the beta band. I'm very, very proud of the fact that I have survived and I still am a musician. A professional musician, I still can make a living out of it, you know, and I'm still making art, you know. And so, and I think one of the things that you appreciate when you get older is the fact it is those facts. Um, it is a very special thing to be able to do. I still, if I'm taking my daughter to nursery or whatever, and I get talking to one of the other parents, and they say to me, "What you know? What do you do?" There's nothing in the world like saying I'm a musician. Yeah, and I remember, you know, when I was when me and Gordon first sort of started doing stuff and, you know, and we used to walk around with our guitars, it was incredibly exciting. And it still is. It still is now The the idea of saying I was something else would be very, very, very difficult. So what I'm saying is that, yeah, I still feel very privileged to do what I do. Very, very privileged. And I think that lockdown in the last two years has probably really heightened that sense as well when you couldn't do it really you know yeah like everyone everyone's had financial worries you wonder if you're still doing the right thing and if you need to kind of uh change or whatever but i think it's having the the courage and the confidence within yourself to keep going and, and i'm lucky that i did have that and i've ended up with what's a pretty spectacular record you know yeah so another 25 years stretch ahead of you <laughs> can you imagine well Mick Jagger's still doing it. Paul McCartney's still doing it. 
I'm lucky that I'm not known for really doing one type of music. You know, I'm known for being quite eclectic. So I lo- I'm lucky that I have the idea that I could kind of make any kind of record that I want. And so that's, that's really good. I, I don't have to tread water making music that I'm not really that into. And, you know, I can make gen- things that excite me. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah. I have to make things that excite me. And uh, I know that if they excite me, that they're going to be really good. Will you be going on tour as well? Because I think the last time I saw you was when you did that uh, big show at the Barbican. Uh, and that was kind of like a career retrospective where you played like there was lots of beta band stuff, there was solo stuff, there was King Biscuit time yeah. stuff. And that felt like kind of almost presenting this great body of work. Mm. Is that going to be the way that you will tour or do you tend to focus just on the new stuff? I think what I tend to do is a bit of a mixture. Sometimes I'll play mainly a new album and and a couple of sort of older tracks that are popular. And then, like, for example, the the tour I did just before Christmas, you know, I did a, some older beta band stuff on, on that tour, you know, as well as some some newer stuff. So you just have to kind of just keep switching it around, really. Yeah, just keep switching it around. And not, I don't really, I'm not massively keen on playing the old stuff. So, but you also can't be precious and you have to give people what they want to an extent. Yeah. You know, I think my audience understand that sometimes I, I'm not that into playing old tracks and sometimes I don't I, sometimes I don't mind you're not interested in doing those kind of play the album uh, in full tours um, no not really no I mean I, I've kind of nostalgia just leaves me cold you know I, I, I hate it there's a time for looking back and there will be a time for me to look back but it's not now you know and I think that I think that I always feel that people that are doing that oftentimes have run out of ideas once you stop looking forward and, st- and you're just constantly looking back the end of it really i think well that's a very uh, good note to end on right thank you for joining <laughs> us steve that was uh fascinating and hopefully we will get the new album this year hopefully i hope so yeah i think you're, i think you're gonna enjoy it thank you for taking the time to speak to us my pleasure <laughs>